Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today, I'm talking to Paul Durso, the founder and chief executive of Anatomics, also a neurosurgeon and an academic. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There's kind of a long story that we're about to get into, I think, and it all kind of centers, obviously, on your career, but also the founding of Anatomics. So you're an Australian medical device manufacturer. Anatomics came in at the sort of the birth of, I guess, 3D printing. Perhaps you can elaborate on on that. Medical 3D printing, yeah. And was a culmination of some of the work that you were doing as part of your PhD back in the day. Just step us through the founding of this, I think you called it a dinosaur of innovation rather than a startup, but this quite incredible company. Talk us through the genesis. So my interest in medical 3D printing really was that the sunrise of the technology didn't actually exist at the time, but what did exist was Australia's first 3D printers, which the Australian government brought to the country in 1990. There's one in Queensland at the Queensland Manufacturing Institute, one in Melbourne. And I came across that technology and was quite inspired by it, I must say, the ability to 3D print objects. At the same time, I was also interested in 3D computer graphics, particularly from CT and MRI imaging, which is a very new technology in medical imaging at the time. I was a junior doctor at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. And I could see the possibility of joining the two technologies together to be able to get the data from a CT scanner and put it through computer graphics software and then put it into a 3D printer so that we could actually then replicate anatomical objects or people's body parts on the 3D printer. And that was just an an idea at the time. I went to the hospital and I put a grant application in and received $1,200 to see if I could do the impossible. And over a period of about a year or two, by 1992, I think within a year, we'd managed to actually achieve our goal. And we joined the uh, 3D printer and the CT scanner together. And that was really the inception of my work to develop pioneer medical 3D printing technology. And Australia was the world leader in this technology initially. And after we sort of pioneered this technology, then the doctors continued it to show a need for what we created. And that spawned Anatomics then, which was a startup company in 1995 that started helping surgeons with reconstructive surgery, providing personalized body parts and 3D printed models or biomodels for surgical planning. And ever since, I've um, been able to have an organic company, Anatomics, as an R&D type of innovator, particularly looking at reconstructive surgery and neurosurgery and applications, software applications of this technology. Okay, there's a few things I want to drill down into with the circumstances of anatomics being born. Just to credential you some more as as if you need it. You're also obviously a fellow at Cambridge University Neurosurgery Unit and a clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School, in addition to teaching duties and research at Swinburne and also a practicing neurosurgeon. So there's a bit going on there. Can I just ask, when the Australian government bought these two machines, these two what became 3D printing machines. How important 
was that there's a lot of discussion right now in other areas. One is quantum, that governments should just go out and buy a couple of quantum computers to enable experts in those fields to play with them effectively. Just talk us through that original leg up. Well, I think 3D printing is an enabling technology and it's a generic technology. It's never going to disappear, really. The ability to replicate objects in three dimensions, obviously, is a very valuable tool. And I think it was very insightful of the Australian government to see that opportunity and to bring the technology into the country. I was based up in Brisbane and the Queensland Manufacturing Institute, which was uh, developed by the state government, it deployed one of these machines and they were very, very good in looking at what was possible with this and inviting people to come in and do research work with that. And I was fortunate enough to get my $1,200 and go to them and say, look, I'd like to print out a body part. Will you help me do that? And they were very helpful. And uh, with the University of Queensland and Queensland University of Technology, we pioneered that technology within a year or two. So fast forward now to anatomics today. I mean, 3D printing's obviously changed out of sight. And uh, I imagine also, you know, very specifically, the printing of body parts has changed out of sight. So just describe to me the difference and the kind of linear progression of that technology and the methodology for using it. So when I started the research, it was a completely new frontier. It's like discovering America. You've got virgin forests and, you know, really it was a complete frontier to start doing this type of work. So we looked into what the applications of the technology would be and we found that we could print body parts for planning and informed consent and operative navigation. We could create personalised reconstructive implants to help people after trauma and tumour surgery to reconstruct their body. And so it opened up all of these amazing applications. We went from a process that would take us probably two to three weeks and within a few years we managed to, to get that down to within 24 hours. Subsequently, we deployed the 3D printing technology into the Alfred Hospital. It was a world first back in 2004 to have it online as an online printer to print out body parts in the hospital. And gradually over time, this has become a generic technology. It's everywhere around the world. It's going to be here forever. I mean, the ability to replicate body parts and to create reconstructive solutions for people is everywhere around the world. That process over 30 years has been very fascinating and we've been able to do all sorts of very innovative things. I've lost count of how many world firsts we've developed along the way. So it's been fabulous in Australia to be able to do that. But there's been enormous challenges in this country to be able to do this as well. I mean, you have to ask the question, why did we develop a technology literally pioneered it in the world 30 years ago? And here we are, Anatomics now is only a very small company and really has not really gained any financial success or global notoriety or anything from that discovery. Why is that so? And the technology is used everywhere, and tens of thousands of people have benefited from this technology every year now, and, and that'll only exponentially grow with time. So one of the downsides is in Australia is it's very difficult to get the recognition and the cooperation to really exploit the technology for the country's benefit. Okay, well, let's dig into that a little bit. In terms of value capture, what could have been done differently? Like, what would you have needed in order to capture value at scale, if you like? Well, I think one of the obstacles I faced is I was very young when I started the technology. You know, you might still think I look young, but 30 years ago, I was in my 20s. And that culture of innovation that seems to be so prevalent now, at that time, didn't exist. Didn't exist at all. So I was some young bloke who was doing a PhD, came along and said, look at this, isn't this amazing technology? But there was no support around that to really develop that business and to innovate it and to grow it in a structured way. And the biggest problem we face, particularly in the medical device industry, is the regulatory situation. 
And unless you've got products that's regulated, you can't get reimbursement for it. And this is the cash 22 that we faced. We came up with innovative solutions that were clearly beneficial to patients, changed people's lives enormously, and surgeons wanted them. But there was no regulatory framework around it, and there was no reimbursement for it. And so unless you're getting reimbursement, you can't really fund the regulatory approval process and so forth. It's a catch-22. And that was, I guess, the biggest obstacle we had. And you'd be amazed that 30 years later, the TGA still has not regulated this technology adequately. There is still no reimbursement 30 years later for what we do, for the vast majority of our surgeries that we carry out with this technology. It's not recognized. It's not valued 30 years later. Now, you have to ask the question, why is that? Why, after innovating technology that's been globally adopted throughout the world, why is that not recognized and valued by our government's regulatory and reimbursement organizations? Why? And that is the single most formidable barrier to commercialization of technology in this country. Okay, so the US is very good at capturing, I mean, a bunch of different places are very good at capturing value, right? So how do they do it differently? If you were a company that was in the US in terms of their regulatory environment, how would you have been treated differently? I think in America, it's completely different because in America, you've got very large multinational corporations that will take you under their wing and help you along through the process. So if you've got a very innovative technology like this, I remember going to Johnson & Johnson in New Brunswick, New Jersey, in 1995. I had patents on the technology and so forth, and I went to them. And unfortunately, as a young Australian person coming to a big city, talking to corporate executives there, they weren't interested in what I was really on about because I spoke a funny language, came from somewhere on the other side of the world, and they knew everything. Why would they need me? Now, if you're in America and you're an American company and you're growing up in that ecosystem, it's very easy then to get support from multinational companies because they're all American. The major device companies are American. Whereas in Australia, you're on your own. It's a totally different landscape here. You're on your own. And not only that, if you're a tall poppy, particularly amongst other surgeons, it's almost like, you know, go away. You know, we don't want to hear about you. And that was a big problem to start with, I must say, for our work. Okay, tell me what things are like now. I mean, we know that in Melbourne, there's quite a very healthy cluster of medtech and biotech companies. Are you active in that community of startups and innovative companies? How do you interact with them? As I said, we're a dinosaur of innovation, so we've been around for so long. And as I said, I think over 30 years, there has been a culture of improving, investing in innovation and realizing how important this is. And you've got to give credit to the government that particularly Malcolm Turnbull, who had the innovation agenda, and they really pumped it up and said, we're going to invest in innovation and ideas and creativity and startups. And that really caused a bit of a boom in the startup and innovation culture probably about eight or nine years ago. And that's been very helpful and very valuable. And we've seen a lot of very good companies start up in Melbourne. We have very strong biotechnology and med technologies here with our universities and CSIRO and so forth. So we've certainly seen that. There's a lot of front-end development in getting ideas out of university and fostering that and promoting that. But what we lack is, as I said, the governance of innovation. You can't innovate unless there's innovation in the governance itself. And that's really where the obstacles are now is in the governments of innovation and the barriers, which are really very large multinational corporations that don't really necessarily want a lot of innovation occurring in places like Australia. This is against their interests to some extent. 
The new federal government obviously has its National Reconstruction Fund. Part of that is focused on the area that you're in, the industry growth program also to, as a kind of a feeder fund for that. What do you make of this new environment? Is it too early to say what that might look like? As a veteran of this business in Australia, where we need the help, and the most important thing, and I can't stress this enough, is with regulatory bodies and reimbursement. That's where the problem is. That's the bottleneck. It doesn't matter how much you innovate and how good your ideas are and how many people you can save and all the rest of it, if that is not regulated and reimbursed, you can't create a business from it. So the investment needs to go back into the government itself. They need to invest in the health department in Canberra and they need to innovate in governance and they need to streamline the regulatory approval process and look at streamlining the reimbursement and they need to facilitate businesses' access to those people and work together as a team. I want to work with the TGA and with the Department of Health to streamline and improve regulatory and reimbursement. You know, I can provide so much help to be able to do that, but they've got to have the ability to do that themselves and have the people and the resources to invest into that themselves. And that's the really the critical thing. So the government needs to invest in itself, invest in its ability to provide innovative governance for our technologies, because otherwise it's a complete bottleneck. And it doesn't matter how many clever startups you've got and how much investment goes into developing product if it cannot get through the regulatory and the reimbursement barriers that exist. Okay. The regulatory stuff, I think I understand. The reimbursement, what are we talking about in reimbursement? So we create prosthetic implants, custom devices, biomodels, surgical tools out of 3D printing. I mean, all of these devices cost money and someone has to pay for it. Now, traditionally, that would be the government or the medical insurance industry would pay for these devices. But unfortunately, there's enormous barriers to be able to get these devices into the reimbursement auditors and bean counters. It's in incredibly difficult. And the, the bar keeps on going up and up and up, I might add. What starts out as being a, a low bar is only increasing over the last 30 years. So it almost becomes impossible because no one wants to spend any more money on healthcare. They don't want to spend money on the healthcare. Okay, so they're putting a dollar cap on these things, or you're saying that the internal expertise within health departments and within the TGA is not keeping up with what is available through the companies like yours? I think there needs to be alignment between Australian innovative industry and regulatory and reimbursement authorities in Canberra. We need to align on this, right? We don't need to put barriers up to our own sovereign manufacturers of devices. We should be working with those sovereign manufacturers to facilitate reimbursement and regulation. And I can, I've been to America numerous times and in Germany and all over the world. And the first question they ask you is, Paul, your technology is terrific, but is it reimbursed and regulated in Australia? And unfortunately, I have to say, well, not really. And they say, we'll get it sorted out in Australia first and then come to us and then you can sell your technology to us if you can prove that you've got a business case in Australia and it's been regulated and reimbursed in your own country. So sovereign manufacturing means innovation in sovereign regulatory and reimbursement capabilities within the government itself. That needs to be aligned and there has to be benefits given to Australian manufacturers over those multinational corporations that are coming in from overseas and we import their product at a premium. So why is this a difficult message to get across? I'm listening to it right now and I think, okay, well, that sounds reasonable. There's value at the end of this. So why is it so hard? Well, it's difficult because the bureaucracy only gets more complicated and complex. It's an ever-evolving and complicating bureaucracy that we're dealing with. The bar keeps on going higher, not lower. And also, there's a lack of expertise in this country, really, to understand what I'm talking about in the first place, I think. 
you know, we don't regulate things. We really, the TGA pretty much just follows what the FDA and the CE mark authorities do. You know, they're not really in a position to actually innovate in their regulatory capabilities. And getting through the layers of bureaucracy, and I established good relations with Minister Hunt because he was innovation minister, then went to health, so I knew him in two portfolios. And he was actually around, I think, for a good eight to 12 years. So he could establish some sort of ability to get the message through. But then that all changes and there's a new minister and people change and everything changes and, and you're back to square one again and you know, reinventing the wheel again. And this is part of the problem we face. And bureaucracies don't want to change. I mean, they're not really interested in changing. And the cost of healthcare is unsustainable. We can't sustain our current expenditure in healthcare. So anyone who comes along and says, well, we want to be funded for something new or whatever, they're going to get an immediate no because we can't afford what we're doing already, let alone afford new things that come along. So there's so many barriers. I could keep on going on for a very long time about this because, again, I'm a veteran of 30 years' experience here and I've been through all the hoops. I've seen everything. I've spoken to every level of government. And I guess I'm a little bit cynical at the end of the day. But what keeps me going is because I believe what we're doing is helping people. And I've got tens of thousands of people, not just in Australia, but all around the world that have benefited from this technology. The proof is there. You know, Google it and have a look. I mean, the evidence is clear. The technology is used globally worldwide. Now, it wouldn't be used if it wasn't useful or helpful for surgeons. That's why they use it. That's why it exists, despite all the barriers. And that's what keeps me going. It sounds like it's been around for a long time and got the scars to prove it by the sounds of it. Let me ask you this. Since COVID, we've been talking about sovereign capability a lot more than we had previously. Do those conversations, have they extended to where you are? The ability to manufacture in this country quite specialised devices like you're talking about? Well, we put out the call to government at the time of COVID and said, look, we've got a fully-fledged manufacturing facility vertically integrated from feedstock to sterile product. We're happy to be at the country's service to help in any way we possibly can at COVID. And I thought that was my duty, obviously, as a neurosurgeon and a medical device manufacturer. And I put the call out to government in Canberra and got no response whatsoever. Okay, so that didn't go down well. Well, nothing happened, you know, and it's not surprising. I mean, I'm not surprised by that because it's very difficult to suddenly coordinate sovereign manufacturing. But we got caught with our pants down, obviously. Everything comes from China and we got caught with our pants down totally and everyone panicked. And it was pretty clear cut that this was on the cards at the time, I would have thought. I mean, it's just logic. We had a pandemic plan, but that plan was thrown in the bin and no one really followed it. So we got caught and everyone then said, oh, we have to have sovereign manufacturing. Now, there's a very good company here in Victoria that received money from the Victorian government to manufacture masks. And, you know, we were using the masks from Made in Australia and that company. But as soon as pandemics clouds parted, we're back to the Chinese ones in no time because they're cheaper. So, I mean, unfortunately, as I said, you know, the cost of healthcare is unsustainable. We can't afford to be paying anything more than we have to in healthcare at the moment, really. We're, we're strapped, actually, and the public hospitals are in a terrible situation. So, the reality is we have to pay for what's cheapest, and that comes from China. So, that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about sovereign manufacturing capability, I think. Jeez. Okay, so the lessons learned from COVID have lasted about two years. It's uh, confronting. Okay, let me uh, move on. I'm going to ask you about this idea of community-based, personalised healthcare. What are we talking about? How did your company, Anatomics, get involved? So one of the beautiful things about 3D printing technology and why Anatomics has you know, really been a very successful company in, in innovating is that with 3D printing technology, computer graphics, internet, we can create manufacturing hubs of great complexity and vertically integrate them in a small facility 
and manufacture it close to point of use in a distributed fashion. And we can use the internet to communicate and connect with doctors anywhere in the world and also then to deliver a digital product at point of use or very close to the use of that product. So this is the idea of distributed manufacturing and community-based personalised healthcare. The idea behind that was to be able to deliver back to communities the capability to manufacture, the capability to create their own devices for their own needs at point of use and use their own people to do that at a high quality, but then use the internet and the cloud to manage the regulatory, the quality assurance, the communication with doctors and manage all that digital side of the business in the cloud. And with this business model, we can have engineers anywhere in the world online, doctors anywhere in the world online, and a delivered manufactured product close to point of use and eliminate these supply chain and logistics issues and make it just in time just for an individual person. So the technology enables communities to make things for themselves, enables communities to take advantage of the global intelligence of doctors, of regulatory, of quality systems, and deliver that global intelligence at a local level. So it enables communities in disadvantaged parts of the world to deliver high technology into their communities so that they can afford because they're making it for themselves by their own people and they're able to adapt the technology to their own needs. And that's the capability we have with community-based personalised healthcare. That's been my message for well over a decade now in Australia. We can do this and that's the type of thing we should be exporting from this country. We can't compete with multinationals on factories and so forth, but we can compete in intelligence and the ability to deliver solutions to people all around the world that will carry with it an Australian brand and a proud Australian legacy that we deliver solutions that people can afford where they live in their communities around the world. That's the sort of moonshot idea that we should be trying to develop. And we can do that at low cost. But that innovation has to occur in the digital quality, regulatory and reimbursement structures that we then embed into this technology. And then other countries can adopt our regulatory and reimbursement and quality strategies that are embedded in that digital economy. That's how we have to progress. But to do that, we need close integration with our own government to see the vision and deliver that vision worldwide with an Australian brand and be proud that we can do that. Sounds good. I'm on board. I'm talking to Paul Durso, neurosurgeon and uh, founder CEO at Anatomics. So let me ask you this, and I'll finish up on this. Your personal expertise has kind of pulled through in this area. Just talk me through what's the pipeline look like of talent in this country in the area that you work? Are there enough numbers coming through or not? And what would you do? There's no lack of talent in this country. We have an incredible system of education, of quality education. We have quality universities. We have bright, intelligent people who feel that they owe something back to their community. They want to do healthcare applications. They're the right people for what we need. There's no lack of those people. We put a job for what we do and then we get flooded with people. We get people approaching us who want to do what we do. There's no lack of the people that can feed into this technology and this innovation cycle. But as I said, I mean, the barrier and the obstacle, the dam is at the other end. It's really the lack of innovation and governance. And that really needs a strong focus on it now. We really need to be a lot smarter in how we do things. And as I said, 30 years after pioneering a technology, if we can't create the governance around innovative technologies that's adopted all around the world, we need to look at that very carefully and think, what can we do better here? How can we improve that? Otherwise, we're failing the generation of young people coming through our system. We're failing those people who want to go into this area. 
that want to help and commit and provide for their fellow human beings and develop their communities in this way. We're failing those people by not creating the conduit through governance to enable them to do what they really want to do. And that's what we need to focus on. That's where the money needs to be invested, in my opinion. All right, Paul Durso, thank you very much for appearing on the Commercial Disco. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.